0: Hey buddy, welcome to the Tropical NBA Podcast, joined by the boss man as is per the usual. Ian, today we are talking about how to get rich. When I was young, I do think it was a big drive in me. I thought, you know, if only I could get rich, I could figure out this freedom thing. I could do whatever I want to do. And I think the internet and lifestyle design and all these kinds of things have changed that quite a bit. It's not just about getting FU money. We talked last week about maybe FU lifestyle. There are hacks or ways around it. Like you were saying, you don't really want to be rich. You want to do the types of things that you always associated with rich. Right. So this week, I uh, invited a man who's done it, Mr. Michael Covell, and asked him the question point blank to his face, how, sir, does one get rich? I'm here with my friend Michael Covell from trendfollowing.com. we got a ton to talk about today. Thanks for having me on your podcast the other week. Yeah, it
1: was great. We got great, great feedback. People that probably are expecting me to throw another trader out there. And I think your, your uh, reception was really nice. People were like, hey, have this guy back on.
0: I'm surprised. I got a lot of really nice emails. I, I, I guess I'm not. I'm so used to communicating to people that are just like me, people that are one degree different one way or the other, live in a different town, have the same attitudes I got a lot of emails from your listeners and a lot of them were in-depth emails. It was cool. It was a cool experience and I went back and listened to it. I was like, "Wow, you're kind of communicating to a whole new group of people. And essentially, you're trying to sell them or introduce them to the concept of location independence." Yeah, it was a really unique opportunity for me, so that was cool. And your listeners are fantastic, so.
1: Well, yeah, I don't I don't really label it as location independence. I basically am just saying, "Okay, here's a way to possibly increase your wealth, then it's up to you to think about the location independence. But I like the fact that you go right for that juggler, so to speak. You know? <laughs> because that is the most important thing. We're in Saigon right now.
0: <laughs> All right. So why is Michael Covell in this program? Entrepreneur, amazing track record. In fact, the title of this episode is going to be How to Get Rich. I want to talk about how to grow a big, successful following in business like you've managed to do since you started
1: your business in 1996. Yeah, I put up a four-page website in 1996, all, all HTML.
0: Fantastically successful. Your face is right next to Jim Cramer's and The Motley Fool when you go to iTunes. Uh, you're one of the most sought-after financial experts in the world. New York Times bestselling author? best-selling author? How do you, how do you define your, your credentials? <laughs> bestselling in there, but not New York Times. So. <laughs> 150,000 copies.
1: A lot of books. The first book sold over a hundred thousand, so it's been an, it's it's sold a lot of uh, across five books. Quite a few sold.
0: So let's then step back to the very beginning, because how to get rich? What's rich? Has your idea about that evolved? I mean, at the beginning, was it like I'm going to get fu money? I'm going to get ten mil, put it in the bank, earn twelve percent a year, and I'm good to go on the yacht. What were you thinking at the very beginning when you
1: got involved in this whole trading and, and entrepreneurship game? Yeah, twenty six, twenty seven is, of course, it's F you rich. It's, if somebody else has figured out a way to make $100 million, why can't I? And that simple little thought is very difficult for most people to, to say because well, there's something special about that other guy. He's, you know, he's got this, he's got that. No, no. It's Even before I proved to myself that that was true, that, okay, that guy did it. I can do it. Even before I had the proof that that was true, I kind of knew it was true. And I, I always say I was somewhat inspired by uh, the passage. It was a passage in Anthony Robbins' book where it talked about uh, Spielberg going out to the universal lot and seeing how films were made. And so my whole thought was, okay, I know I can do this. I just need to find who's doing it and see what they're doing.
0: Let's walk back to Northern Virginia. You're in high school. How do you decide where to go to college and what do you study?
1: I wanted to play baseball, so and my grades were terrible, <laughs> so uh, that, that's, I don't think that's a surprise for most baseball players. And so I went to a small liberal arts college my first year, played, played baseball there, and then I was like, okay, I've had enough of this, and then I would transfer to George Mason University mm-hmm. and proceeded to get even worse grades. So university,
0: you didn't really do well? No. And while you're in university, what are you thinking you're going to do after you get out with this crappy degree and bad grades?
1: My father had made money in real estate. So living in Northern Virginia and seeing the development process, I said, okay, this is, this is where there's going to be money to be made. There's, there's a tremendous amount of money to be made here. And so that stuck with me. And then I decided to run for mayor of the community I lived in when you're, I was 21 years of age. You're serious. Dead serious. Dead serious. So you had
0: a, a certain panache, even at a young age.
1: I was. Right there, wanting to be rich. <laughs> he was 72. I was 21. Did he win? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't win at all. But it was a great experience because then you, you see it at an early age. Oh, wow, my name's in the Washington Post. Right. You know, so you, you know I, I, there's probably a side of me at a young age where you kind of, maybe you thought you were, I thought I was more important than I was. But you realize in an early age, oh, the system is there for anybody. Now, now where do you want to come into the system to play? So I realized by my, after my early 20s, I was like, it's not going to be a politician. That's just a thankless, meaningless, empty, <laughs> dead-in brain space of a position to be in. So I went back and I got my MBA, which is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so you're equipped with an MBA, you're thinking that
0: this is going to be a ticket to some kind of wealth.
1: No, you know what? I, I The only reason I went and got my MBA is my undergrad grades were so terrible. and I still had political ambitions. And I figured, well, all the politicians have multiple degrees. So let's go get another degree. OK.
0: Definitely a Northern Virginia kid.
1: Yes. Terrible. <laughs> so let's go. This is collect degrees. And uh, I got to my first semester at Florida State in grad school in Tallahassee, Florida. And I was there literally weeks. And I was like, OK, I can't, I'm going to lose my mind here. Can't stay here, and I it was a two-year program, and I figured out with literally in the first couple weeks how I could spend my last semester in London uh, taking my electives. Okay, and that probably changed me the most, which was, which right up your alley of kind of getting away and going to some place different. But you know, mid twenties, go live in London, boom, that was it, game on.
0: And what what is it that you saw there that changed your mindset?
1: World's a big place. Northern Virginia is a small little political place. of Close to Washington D.C., it's very you know, America is very insular. What's the what's the thing? Seventy percent of Americans don't have a passport. I think it's more than that. Yeah, it's atrocious. <laughs> it's atrocious. You know, and so you get overseas and you see all oh, how these other people are living, their foods, their culture, and you're like, wow, this is cool. You know, the, the world's a much wider place. The is even bigger.
0: So for me, when I was in university after you, the world was still this opaque place, but you seem to kind of see the matrix a little bit earlier than I did. I guess, where did you choose? You said you have to go in somewhere. How did you choose to go in? What was your next move?
1: Well, I finished, the, I finished the grad school. showed back up in Northern Virginia. And I didn't have any connections to anywhere. But I figured, well, if you're going to get rich, you have to be on Wall Street. If you, if you want to make a few money, you have to go to Wall Street, period. And you know, Florida State's not exactly alumni central on Wall Street. So, <laughs> but, but Jim Massey... Who was featured in the book Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. Which I was listening to today. He was the just recently retired CEO of Solomon Brothers. Okay. And so I bugged him. He said, come on up. Took the train up to Greenwich, Connecticut.
0: How did you, let's, let's unpack Bug a little bit. This guy's a famous guy. He's a
1: retired CEO of Salomon Brothers, one of the largest investment banks in the world. Yes, my first meeting. my you're an my first, from Florida State. My <laughs> first, well, he went to Florida State. so ah. So my, you know, the alumni thing. So I was probably just perfect timing. He retired and nobody, I don't know, people probably were not beating his door down. Right. So I wrote him a few letters or something and he said, sure, come on up. I don't know. The letters, I don't know what I said, but something that got the door open.
0: Like I just want to have a coffee kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I went up to Greenwich, Connecticut, and which for those of you that are not aware, when I say Greenwich, Connecticut, you should realize that it just means money. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went up and sat down with him at a little cafe, a little French cafe or something. We're eating lunch. And I'm rambling away, and he's like eating a salad, not even paying attention to me at all. For just going like for a half hour. I'm like, okay. This really sucks because this guy can make or break me. I mean, he's retired CEO of one of the largest investment banks in the world. I mean, it doesn't make a difference if he just retired less than a year ago. He can still, boom, write the ticket. Right. We're talking significant amount of money if you work for Solomon Brothers. Massive, huge. The FU that we're just talking about, right? (laughs) And uh, so he's eating half hour into this. I'm like, this is going downhill. And so I just looked at him and I, I, people probably think I make this up, but what the hell? I had nothing to lose. He was never going to talk to me again.
0: Right.
1: So I just looked at him and I said, I said, Hey, look, this is not going very well. You haven't said anything for like a half hour. I'm just talking to myself. And I said, you know, what have I said today? One question for you. What have I said today where you thought I was full of (laughs) exact word? He stopped eating, put his fork down. He leaned his head up and he looked at me and he said, you said you wanted to be the best. You don't want to be the best. You just want to win. Now, let's go talk. Now, if you read Liar's Poker, he was the guy that was the first person the trainees met. So my only knowledge of Jim Massey I had was the description in Liar's Poker, which was like this guy that Michael Lewis was scared to shit of. So anyways, that was my... And nothing happened from that, really, other than some great meetings. And I would be sitting in his office and he would get a phone call and it's Newt Gingrich. I mean, it was just these kinds of things where you could see, here's this one guy... He's just one guy. He puts his pants on. You know, if you see somebody put their pants on, you can put your pants on, too. And like you, you have to I think sometimes maybe people they read too much. They see too many magazine articles and they don't go find these people. So when you sit down with someone, you talk to them one on one. You're like, OK, he can do it. I can do it. He can do it. I can do it.
0: What what are you looking to get at all this? Did you want to become a trader or an analyst at
1: Solomon Brothers? Absolutely, I wanted to work at Solomon Brothers. He got me an interview there, I, and I remember meeting with some young.
0: They interview six thousand people, give away two hundred jobs.
1: Yeah, I met with some. I met with some lady, and she was basically asking me if I was an astrophysicist, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was just kind of downhill. And it was actually a terrible year for Wall Street. Nineteen ninety four was a terrible year for Wall Street. They were not hiring, so I left.
0: So you knew a few people. You couldn't get a job yet. What was your next move?
1: I knew one person. I didn't even know a broker. I didn't even know the local, excuse my French, I did not even know the local fucking broker you know, at Schwab or, or whatever. The only guy I knew was the retired CEO At that Brothers. time, did
0: you even know what brokers did? Or were you just thinking, this is... I this, just need to
1: get in the door. After, after, after reading rich. Liars Poker, you read Liars Poker, Michael Lewis didn't know shit. He's a smart guy. He's like, let me get in the door. His book, Boomerang, is fabulous, by the way.
0: Absolutely fabulous. Just putting it out there for anybody listening to the show.
1: So just get in the door. But so, you know, I came back and from that experience, and I was like, okay, now what? And uh, I picked up a magazine. It was from a Borders Bookshop, and it was Wall Street's top 100 paid for the year. Massey had been in it for the prior year. And... In that issue, like on number 35 in the list, was like this guy, Jerry Parker. And Jerry Parker was 37 years old and had just made $35 million. And he lived 90 minutes away from me in Richmond, Virginia. And he was trained. He went to a school, this little article said. Went to a school to learn how to make money. Okay, what's the school? I don't care what the admission process is. If he went, I can go. If Whatever he learned, I can learn. And uh, that was kind of the start of my, quote, trend-following career, falling into this. That's what he was doing. He was doing this certain style of trading. This is the way he made his money. And, and now uh,
0: trend-following is your brand. So you piggybacked that concept.
1: I'm sure some critics will say I stole it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, trend-following has been a style of trading that's been around for uh, you know the late 1800s. So there's always been this style of thinking where it's like, and look, you do it in your business too. You let your profits run and you cut your losses short. Right. Right. What, is the, what would you say? What's the elevator pitch for trend following as a style? If the market's going up, you want to be up making money while the market goes up. Look, if Tesla's going straight up, I don't, want to, I don't even care what Tesla does. Do you really care what Tesla does if you bought in early and now it's where it's at now? Why does it matter what they do? If you're just trading the stock to make money, Who cares? the same philosophy on the downside. So you can, you can make money shorting a position. So it was a very, it was a style of trading. This guy, Jerry Parker was doing that was agnostic to, well, I have to be an economist. I have to be a politician. I have to, I have to understand this. I have to, I have to understand balance sheets and I've got to, I've got to know what value is. I'm like, well, how am I going to learn all this stuff? I don't, you know, I'm not an economist. I don't understand value. And, uh,
0: so this is like the a technique that would not
1: depend on reading the morning newspaper or understanding geopolitics. Absolutely, absolutely, not. No, literally, literally. It's like, look, if we all look and we think about Apple, let's say it was trading around sixty a few years ago, whenever it was, and it went up to seven hundred. Why does why do any of us care what Apple does? If you knew you could buy at sixty or seventy or eighty or two hundred, and it went to seven hundred, why does anybody listening care what Apple does? Really, Why, does it, why right. does it matter? Why does it matter?
0: And if you what your basic the point the perspective of trend following is that if you catch yourself caring, it will reduce the quality of your trades.
1: I don't know. It's just it's more simple. It's 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 so simple that I think it 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 scares people or it frightens people or they or they they walk past what it is. It's literally like, okay, we're sitting here. It's it's a momentum style trading. So it's you are never getting in at the bottom of a big move and you're never getting out at the top. So if you Think back to this Apple chart that we all know, you know, around 60, up to 700, down to 450 or whatever. You know, let's say you got in at 100. You know, the market keeps moving up. And so, okay, the market's moving up. I'm going to take a position. I'm going to buy Apple. It's moved from 60 to 80. I'm just going to buy it. No questions asked. You now own Apple. Now what? Well, do nothing. Just wait. What do you mean just wait? Yeah, just wait. Just sit there. Do nothing. I mean, I don't have to read the papers and find out what Apple's doing next. No, no, don't do anything. It goes from 100 to 200. Now what? What do I do now? Just sit. Wait. Don't do anything. What do you mean don't do anything? I have to keep learning. What are you learning? It goes to 300. What do I do now? Nothing. Wait. What do you mean wait? Yeah, just wait. Do nothing. You're sitting there. You've gone from 60 to 300. What do, why do you want to do anything? Wait. It's at 500 now. So you're making a lot of money. So what? This is a good thing. It's a six hundred. So, yeah. What, what? What's the problem?
0: So then, how does a trend follower? It's at seven
1: hundred. Know, know when to get out of that. It's a, if it goes, it reaches a peak and it goes against the peak a certain amount. So it finally got up to let's say seven hundred or something, and everyone's going to have their own way of picking how to get out. But let's say it gets to that peak, the high, and maybe it goes to six hundred. Mm-hmm. So you get out at six hundred. So instead of imagining, oh, I would have bought Apple when it was at the lowest price and I got out it right at seven hundred, which is impossible. You're, you're really just saying, hey.
0: Take the meat of it.
1: Take the meat of it. Right. Take the meat of it. it it's, it's really similar thinking to, and you've got you to do this over a portfolio. So it's a lot like, a lot like how Hollywood funds films. So right. they don't, you know, you fund 10 films, nine of them are going to suck. One of them becomes Titanic, and Titanic makes you all the money and pays for all the losses from the nine films that suck.
0: Right. So you saw this style of trading, this this one individual, and you said,
1: that's something I can do. Right. How did you get your stake? When you don't have a stake, you have to figure out how to get a stake. And so it took me a period of time. It took me a period of time to finally meet this one guy. It took me like 18 months of bugging him. I think I wrote him how up. How are you making money during that time? You know, I was thinking about this. Are you little... washing cars? Or... No, <laughs> no, I was thinking about this the other day. Somebody, I don't know if it's telling you or somebody else, but they there was, in the early 1990s, Apple computers were, the Macs were were priced pretty expensive. And so I learned that you could go to I don't know what it CompUSA or whatever it was at the time and you could go in and let's say a, a new Mac was priced at 4000 and you'd go in and buy the open box machine and they would just crank the price down for like a open box to like 1500 so you buy the open box at 1500 sell it on the Washington Post for close to retail
0: so entrepreneur Michael Koval, right yeah, out of the, right yeah, out of the gate. that was a lot of that was a lot of money that way you know Absolutely. So you're like an original eBay hustler without eBay. <laughs> there's no eBay. There's no
1: eBay for sure.
0: But uh, you finally meet this guy. What happens? Yeah. That, what transpires?
1: In the spring of 1995, there was a major investment bank, a major bank in uh, Singapore blew up called Barings Bank. It's very famous. If you Google it, you can, you'll probably refresh your memory. There was movies made about it. It's guy named Nick Leeson. Well, in trading, there's always two sides of the coin. There's the guy that's long who's betting for the market to go up and this guy that's betting for the market to go down. It's kind of a, what they call a zero sum game. And at the time that Leeson lost, he was on the front cover of Time being handcuffed. But like, I'm saying to myself, okay, who was the winner? Who who was the winner? You know? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Who the hell made the money? And I had been volunteering for a financial association because I just want to get around these guys. And I was in London and I was sitting in a room and somebody was giving a presentation. It was like three people in the room. But the two people in front of me, directly in front of me, were the two CEOs of two brokerage firms. And they were having a grand old time talking amongst themselves. And this is literally like a couple months after Barings Bank blew up. And basically, they said out loud who was on the other side of Barings Bank. And it was John W. Henry, who currently owns the Boston Red Sox. So in this great 0 sum transfer that there is, I now knew, while Time Magazine didn't know, I now knew who the winner was. I thought that was terribly valuable information and also confirmed for me exactly how trend following worked. And there's a lot of confirmations, but that was a big confirmation. So I had been bugging this guy, Jerry Parker, who I'd read about the prior year, and uh, he finally gave me a meeting and I sat down with him. It was a half-hour meeting. And uh, once again, it wasn't going very well. So finally, the end, I had no way to prove that John W. Henry was on the other side of the Baring's Bank thing. I had no way to prove this. And uh, so at the end of the meeting with Jerry Parker, I'm in his private office. This was I, your angle with him, to tell him this information? No, no, no. I was I, The meeting was going downhill. I was, I was basically looking for either an informational interview or a job or whatever, and so, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And so I just looked at him in his private office. The meeting was almost over. They told me in advance I only had 30 minutes with the guy that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And why did they
0: give you the meeting?
1: Though? Because I sent them a top 10 list of the reasons why they had to let me have a meeting with Jerry Parker. And basically I probably insulted their firm that they, if they would not have me, that they had to have me. There was no other, they had to have me have, they had to let me in to talk to Jerry Parker, Period. So, I don't I have
0: to. And you're just a kid without a stake at this point.
1: <laughs> Some, well, you know, it's, it's, there's something slowly happening. I want to tell you about my eBay moves. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, this meeting's not going well, really, whatever. And I said, Jerry, I have one question for you. John W. Henry was on the other side of Barings Bank, right? And he kind of looked at me from across the room and he's like, Can't believe you just asked me that question in my private office about one of my peers. And all I could say was yes. And I was just like, because then, then, then I had the ability to— So you showed him that you had unique knowledge. I wasn't thinking about it at the time because I was just thinking about that I just wanted to know something. And I knew he could confirm it. Right. When that, and that became the centerpiece of my first book. And I was the first person to write about that. And I still never had any proof. So basically I'm in the midst of billionaires telling people how they make money without a legal defense fund. But so what do you do? But if you're right, if you're right, what are they going to do? <laughs> what are they going to do? You know? What's the ultimate defense of libel? There's one defense of libel. What is it? The truth. The truth. (laughs) So I know it was, I mean, but you know, that's high stakes poker, so to speak. But if you're right. So what did he say? He said, yes. He said, yes. I asked him, I said, was John Henry on the other side of Barings Bank? And basically John Henry used all the money that he won from Barings Bank to buy the Boston Red Sox. Wow. Which in turn now he owns a British football team too. So it's. All these things stemming out of this one little kind of like trading strategy that I was reading about. And
0: so, did you ever then go to become a broker? Did you just go straight start writing the no, books? No, I,
1: I didn't. Um, I started trading my own account and fits and starts and stops and all that stuff. But then I decided after I learned how all this worked, I just said, well, you know what? This looks like a good business opportunity too to teach people. I was so fascinated with how Jerry Parker made this money with no knowledge of economics or news or whatever. I thought it was so fascinating. I was like, well, why do not I teach other people how to do it? And he was nicknamed a turtle. It was the nickname of the students. And he was one of this group of students. He was nicknamed a turtle by a very famous trader in Chicago. And so I went on. You kept going down the rabbit hole. I went down to Network Solutions, and I registered turtletrader.com. and put up a website in October of 1996.
0: And you became sort of like a journalist for this movement. You wanted to tell the story of trend following. So the book opens up with the story of the turtles. Which is the idea that as long as you have a brain and you're willing to follow certain instructions, you can become a successful trader on the marketplace. That's basically the story that then you started telling on that four-page website.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: How much money does somebody need to be a trader? Tell me how this works. A lot of people go into my forum and they say, I've got an extra 20 grand. Mm. What should I do with that? Do you think that they should take the extra 20 grand and then start... Trading. I mean, what what do you think about
1: that? I think they should probably. There's probably about fifteen to twenty books they should read, and once they read them, they think they understand those books. Reread those books, and they probably won't be asking that question. Interesting. So it's the the moment you have to ask that question, you're already. you know, because because you're basically just asking for permission. Um, can hey, you do me hey, a favor? hey, Mister, can I have can I have I have twenty grand? What should I do with it? Can I can I get rich? Can I make money with my twenty grand here? Can you anoint me? Can you touch me on the shoulder? Can you just give me a little kiss on the forehead, please? I'll be okay. <laughs> oh, come on! Don't be such a pussy.
0: Can you do me a favor? <laughs> and I, I love that. By the way, I've written that in one of my articles. I just can't stand being a pussy. Like I, that's my motivation in life is just to not be called a pussy. I don't know if that's a traumatic childhood or whatever. Let me take a step aside from the story real quick to talk about getting rich. You're a guy who went out there, wanted to make a lot of money, and you did make a lot of money. And that's changed the trajectory of your life quite a bit. A lot of people in our community are faced with this decision. Should I do something that I know I can make a lot of money, in quotes, a lot, I don't know what that means, or should I go after my passion, be a writer, maybe put up with some poverty, maybe start an NGO, whatever. Do you think that people that go rich get happy? I mean, do you think it's? I mean, what are the trade-offs? Do you think that mm-hmm. you've sacrificed a lot to go down this route? What's your current thinking about that? I mean, if you could do it all over again, would you still try to go and get rich and all this kind of stuff? I mean,
1: you know, my father was an entrepreneur. He's a dentist, and but he speculated in real estate too, and so here I am the son of essentially an entrepreneur, but he didn't really act like an entrepreneur like I do. He, he was more like kind of a quasi-entrepreneur, even though he is one. But he used to always have this expression that stuck with me when I was young, which is, you know, do you want to spend your life saying yes, sir, to an asshole? <laughs> so that's where it starts. And uh, so every person's different. In terms of the getting rich, I mean, I, if, if you have to wake up each day And you have to go to work and the working is sitting at a screen, not moving for 10 hours a day, literally not moving for 10 hours a day. And there is a massive amount of pressure on you that you instinctively know is harming your health. You instinctively know is not good for you. The people that you work with are doing massive amounts of drugs. You're having to drink like a fish. All because you're going to get a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow when you're 50 years of age. And then you're going to magically have all of this insight where you're going to travel the world and do this and do that because you, you, you acted like a, you know, a desperate loser for 30 years just to get the, the, the cheese from somebody who anointed you. And you had to say that yes sir to an asshole for 30 years. Is it worth it? I don't know. Once again, I'm telling you, you know, what, you know what the answer is. And I mean, if you're listening and you don't know what the answer is, maybe you need to go work for that asshole for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I got a
0: question. All right. How would you do things differently? You got started with that website. And I want to hear a little bit more about this. I want to hear about your podcast and stuff. But what would you do if you were starting today? You know, because you did all this stuff that we advocate back when it was hard to do. Now you can just go
1: comment. I mean, it's amazing to me how few people still hard to do. will reach out to people. How many people do what you do? It's still hard to do. Come on. you know, It's not hard to do. You've got to you gotta love it. If you don't love it, you're not going to
0: do it. You had to get on a train <laughs> and write top 10 lists to secretaries in order to sit with some guy who's going to give you some awkward interview for a half an hour. But now it's hard to convince people just to comment on someone's blog or to cold call somebody. Everybody's available now. You can tweet. Anybody can go to at Covell and tweet True. you. So it's a much more transparent world. I, I didn't know rich people. You took the next step of like getting Time Magazine and then meeting that person. And frankly, I don't know if that were the barriers in front of me, I wouldn't maybe not be sitting here today. I don't know. So I guess the question is, what would you do today? And what would you... What
1: is your, what is your advice to young people, Michael? Mm. <laughs> I would not diversify. So if you find something that works, put the pedal to the metal. And so I had... With my online business with TurtleTrader.com, a lot of success fairly early, and I spent a lot of time diversifying because you, you I'm in the dot .com, am in the middle of the dot .com bubble, and I'm actually making money off an online business, which was a rarity. So <laughs> nobody was actually making money off, except you know Phantomware and stuff. So I think if you find something that you like to do and it works, don't question whether you got lucky or whether this or that. Just stick with it. You know, I think Seth Godin's a great example. Like the simple little blog, and it's just like he just does one thing. And I've heard people say, "Oh, Seth, he's boring, this and that." And no, he does one thing beautifully. Do find the one. You, you, you can't do everything in life. I mean, you can't do everything. You're not gonna. You're not gonna. Or, do you want to become an expert? Do you want? Do you want to have this like in-depth knowledge about something, or do you just want to be some generalist who? runs around with you know, some kind of memorization skill popping out facts because you know, you're at a cocktail party or the local bar and you're sitting there having some mental masturbation session with some other guy that's having a mental masturbation session. Right. two of you sit there and exchange facts. and Then you go home and you wake up and you repeat tomorrow, watch, rinse, repeat. How boring is that? When I, look
0: at, when I look at your case, it takes a while to get the attention of the top players. I mean, you being called, called into consulting sessions with banks that lead countries. They want to talk to you. That's not going to happen in 1996, right? That takes some, mm. some years of momentum. What was it those first few years that gave you your initial success? What were you selling?
1: I started teaching people how this one style of trading worked in 1996. And I did that religiously through 1992. And wait, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2002. 2002. And, um, and then I, I started to, I caught some flack from some trolls before the word troll existed. I wish the word troll existed then. But They were haters. Yeah, they were just haters and trolls. And so I caught some flack and I thought to myself, I need to diversify. And, and what was their main criticism of you? Was it that
0: you're not a rich guy? Who is this guy to teach
1: other nah, people? Their criticism was just basically hate. It was just like, I'm not doing what you're doing. It was not. I mean, there was... There was it's nothing. an emotional topic, this trading, for whatever reason. People... Money's an emotional topic. Yeah. I mean, right? So... They just hated. I mean, they, you know, whether whether they didn't think I had the academic chops or this or that or whatever. It just, yeah, it was or people maybe that they had they had more experience. So why should you be doing it? I have more experience than you. All that kind of stuff. And so six years into it, I said, well, gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do a book. I'm just doing a book.
0: Six years into it after teaching people online or in person or
1: online, online with
0: no. What kind of software were you using back then? I mean. What do you mean? What, like, how were you teaching them online? Were you giving them oh, books? It,
1: no, it was. It was. We were, I was sending out information, you know, via FedEx packages. So, uh, CDs, DVDs, written materials, and then kind of this kind of collaborative email support. Okay. just the easiest thing that didn't require people like the original Tim Ferriss
0: business basically
1: <laughs> yeah I mean you know why why you know sometimes people get all caught up in it. we must have this like complicated uh, support system with <laughs> ticket numbers and it's like no dude just send me an email and I'll answer your question <laughs> right I mean you know it works it still works exceptionally well in 2013 so I decided to write this book and you know, it's weird you, you do all this for a long time you forget how things happen sometimes until someone starts asking you so Maybe it was 2002, 2003. I was actually in, partly inspired by the trolling, but the chairman of finance at the University of Southern California sent me an email and he said, I don't know who you are, <laughs> but more people are downloading my PDF white paper on zero sum trading from anywhere else in the world. And they're coming through your site. Who are you? Whatever. Will you, will you read my book and write a review of it? Uh-huh. And I said, sure, I'll read your book and write a review of it as long as you introduce me to your publisher. Because I want to write a book. I'm writing a book. I'd probably I didn't tell him I want to write a book. I told him I'm writing a book. <laughs> at that moment, I'm writing a book, right? right? And he said, sure. So he gave me the name of some guy at Oxford University Press. They were going to pay me like 15 grand. And we were going through all the negotiation and writing. And I was like, well, this is pretty exciting. My first book, Oxford University Press. Boy, this sounds really important right you know it's a huge huge name and right at the last minute the guy like no we're not doing it and so i'm like well okay you got to give me a lead to somebody else he goes well here talk to my other friend at uh, pearson financial times prentice hall's big conglomeration of names i was like look man i've got this blog essentially before people were using the word blog i've got this website it's generating all this traffic a lot of here here are all the domain names that have been coming through my servers it's every investment bank in the world Every brokerage firm in the world, every financial firm in the world, they're all coming through my website. Here's how much traffic I'm getting.
0: Why were they so interested in your website? What were you doing there to get the attention of some of the most powerful people in the world? Were um, you blog, was it, was it blogging? Were you sitting there writing articles about stuff? Were you commenting on the news? Like, what was your strategy? Yeah, I mean, first? I
1: was putting a lot of things that ultimately became, they got fleshed out more in my first book, I was putting online. So I was talking about this Bearings Bank thing with John W. Henry, the owner of the Red Sox. I was talking about that online before it was in my first book. And so a lot of those kinds of things. And people were probably realizing, oh, the guy behind this knows something or has seen something or is. And, and look, there was just a, it was just a fragmented world. Nobody, I, it was a real niche. It was very fragmented over an occasional magazine article or some old books or whatever. So I was basically saying, let's get it to one place. Anyways, the guy from Oxford Press said, we'll talk to my other friend. And they said, okay, we'll let you write this book. And here's 15 grand, go write a book. And it was the book, though, that was the credibility. Because I knew I had interest because of the website, but the book was the credibility. The book was like where Bill Miller at Leg Mason, who was one of the largest fund managers in the world, would like, be like, I want to talk to you. Or the David Harding, who runs a $24 billion fund today, would say, hey, come to my office. So,
0: so it's th- these fund guys that they're looking to you because they want to have the information edge. So you position yourself as this exotic character Basically they look to you as you might have know something that they don't.
1: Well, the book was out. So I'm talking this is my first book, Trend Following. Mm-hmm. So the first book Trend Following comes out in the spring of 2004. And literally, you know, the publisher calls me up. I guess at that time even on Amazon, you could you would see even before the book was released, you would see the rank. And so he called, remember he called me up a a month before the book was available. And he's like, "Did you see this?" I don't, I didn't know anything about books at all. You know, I'm like, this is my first book, so to speak. So I don't know anything about the process. And he says, did you see this? I'm like, what are you talking about, Jim? He's like, well, your book is not gonna be available for 30 days still. And it's in the top 500 of all books in print on Amazon. Why? How did it happen? I don't know if I've got a good answer other than just the people that were following the website. There's, I'm sure there's a viral aspect there. The people that were following the website were like, oh, hey, this guy's been running this website. It's got a book coming out and you don't need a huge number to get that to that. And I wasn't trying to engineer anything at all. This was all 100% viral, literally Seth Godin 101, create something with passion. If people like it, it's a niche. They're going to tell their friends, that kind of thing. So, Was I,
0: that the biggest turning point in the business to date, putting that book out there? Uh,
1: sure. I mean, the business had made a lot of money um, before that. But it was the, the credibility, the public credibility didn't happen until April of 2004.
0: Let me ask you about this. There's, this. there's a debate online between audience building an audience and building trust and building money. So you know that you're pulled in opposite directions, right? Like you've got a bunch of people in your mailing list and in your products and stuff that you could go and sell them more stuff, but that would prevent you from producing more content. How do you think of the difference between money and power? Does that make sense? You said that that credibility was really valuable to you. Is it only valuable to you because you know you can go write a check on the back of that? Or is it valuable to you for another reason? Like is it exciting to have credibility or does it open doors that are interesting? Because you, know, you don't seem right now, you you don't act every day like you're trying to maximize your income.
1: There's a lot of guys that have a lot of money that don't have a lot of power.
0: What's that about? I agree with that. I instinctively agree with that, but I'm not sure that...
1: Because if you power is the ability to have a tribe, power is the ability to have and not like some fake thing, a tribe of people that like genuinely, you know, have developed either a trust in you or respect in you, a faith in you, and they want to listen to what you have to say. And it's not it's 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 just real. And I don't necessarily know that you can plan it or organize it or whatever. I think it's if you find your passion in life and you just start talking to them Start talking to a microphone. (laughs) Maybe people will listen. I don't know. I don't think I've finished that. Hit me. Why did
0: you start the podcast? Like, what was the genesis of that? Just to give people an idea. I mean, you've got this podcast with a million downloads plus. You're sitting up there with these brands that are that are ridiculous: Jim Cramer, Motley Fool, CNBC, all this kind of
1: crap, and then it's Michael Covell. Yeah, well, in between in between the podcast and the first book was four more books and a film. So, <laughs> but but yeah, the podcast I decided to I'd done very short form versions of a podcast, like two minute little me just rants, and I did that in I don't know oh six to oh eight, and you can actually look at some of the some of the troll reviews for itunes are still there from like back in the day like it's like literally it's kind of funny because you read them now the guy's like these these suck they're too short and it's like now they're all like an hour long so his his review looks idiotic so january of 2012 now mind you here i mean i've got the ability i've got now a platform so to speak i've got people that are reading my blog facebook twitter and so i said well i'm just gonna put a podcast up and i didn't really have any I'd done a lot of interviews in the past, but I had not really done – I'd not done a long-form podcast series. So I did four or five monologues, so to speak, just me riffing, and then uh, asked a couple traders who had new books out if they would appear, and they did. And it was a couple hundred people a day maybe. And then Jack Schwager, who has written some of the books that I will recommend to your audience – he had a new book coming out that was a continuation of a series that he had started 20 years before. It was a very famous Wall Street series called The Market Wizards. And he had a new book out. And so he agreed to appear. And you could tell Jack's kind of a, a prickly character a little bit, I would say, as a fair assessment. But you could tell he had a good time. And you could tell that he respected the fact that I read his book and asked him good questions. And that all of a sudden that was like, that just spiked. That spiked. And so it's just been a it's been a, a an ongoing spiking of listens. You must since love then.
0: it. You have 150 plus episodes. You're cranking. You still work so hard. Why?
1: Why aren't you my type? Well, what's on the, the beach? Defi- what's what's work? Good what are you question. gonna do? At the, what are you gonna do at the beach? Hold on. So let me let's let's just let's just let's hypothetically take this one out. So you're the guy out there that doesn't have any money, and your your dream is what to go sit on the beach and have no knowledge, no wisdom or anything, and just smoke pot and sit there and chase girls in bikinis, that's what you want to do? Is that really what you want to do? Right. Or is that the the idiotic version that's been sold by media for the last 20 or 30 years? No. I mean, yeah, of course. It's a
0: fantasy of someone I've, who hates their life, right? Yeah. I mean, I had that fantasy because my life really sucked. I sat in commute and I went to a job and I was broke. And so, yeah, the bikinis sounded pretty good at that. That. They still sound. <laughs> <laughs> if they ever stop sounding good, I hope someone takes me out. You got another problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: there's another problem.
0: But you still you're still working really hard every day. I mean, you still motivated. What's work? Good question.
1: Yeah, what is work? And what's rich? We didn't define that one either. What's work and what's rich?
0: What's rich? Let's talk about it cuz this whole episode is about getting rich. How to get rich.
1: Yeah, well there's a couple different versions, right? Rich is money. You got to have money. I mean, that's the way the game has been laid out. You got to have you got to have money to Travel, do whatever. You got to have money. How much money do you need? You know, you're probably a better expert at that than I am. I don't. I don't know anymore. I. I, uh, I don't know anymore. I'm. I'm skewed. Right. I mean, I, I, you don't need a lot. I. I can think back to starting my stuff. You. You scrimp. You know, it's scrimp. I don't. know That's a word, but you skimp. You know, You. You, you don't use much. I mean, I can still remember back at a certain point in time juggling 10 credit cards because you could transfer the balances, you know, that whole routine. I did that too. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. You take advantage of what is afforded to you uh, on the playing field. And, you know, as we talk about this, one thing I can pass along, I've had a chance to sit down. I think it's not a cocky statement or anything. It's just kind of more of a trivial pursuit thing. Four billionaires and some in-depth conversations and many guys that are clearly worth over $100 And I think the, 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 the only reason they talk to me is they know I'm not a jock sniffer, mm-hmm. you know, because the vast majority of the world are jock sniffers. The vast majority of the world makes a guy who has a billion dollars feel like he's being threatened.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm just talking to him like I'm talking to you. And they respect that because you know what? Ultimately, they are just like me and you, except they have a billion dollars in the bank. That is extremely difficult for people to accept. It's true. It's 100% true. So,
0: now, let's contradict ourselves just a tinge. Mm. There's got to be something that successful people have differently than the vast majority of people who don't make it happen. Mm. Is it that they just know what you just said? Is that they have that kind of, you know, it's framed up when I was growing up, that's like hubris, that's arrogance. But the way you just described it, it's just good sense. Mm. And maybe if you grow up in the position that we did, you would become a jock sniffer because you think that that person is this special luminary type that had something special. But what you're saying is, I met these guys. I sat down with them, and they're just like me.
1: There's two kinds. There's two kinds. So you have the you have the guy that gets rich off the system. You know, he is the guy that says yes sir to an asshole, and he gets rich off the system. Who's that guy? Who's an example of that? Uh, that a trader maybe? You know, if somebody says, uh, "I'm the new CEO of Yahoo," uh, okay, you know what? How much ass-kissing did you have to go through to become the CEO of Yahoo? Sorry, no thank you. Okay. Now, by contrast, I have a friend, associate, somebody who appeared in my film. He's been in my book, a guy named Salem Abraham. Salem is in his late 40s, early 50s, worth over $100 million. Didn't start with much at all, but he started when he was 22 years of age. And he wanted to work from, talk about location independence, he wanted to work from his small hometown in Canadian, Texas, and so he's got these crazy stories about getting T1 lines and Canadian and all this kind of stuff. But So he's like, what can I do that will allow me to be where I want to be in Canadian, Texas, the panhandle of Texas? There's nothing there. I've been there several times. Nothing there. It's very cool. you know. It's like he's building his own SimCity. Um, <laughs> but he's outside of the system, and he was, his thing was, how can I make the money at this location? And he was going to start a T-shirt business. He was going to start a t-shirt business.
0: That's everybody's first business idea. Yeah,
1: yeah. right, right. Here's the funny thing, just to to make a parallel to my world, except he was going to start a t-shirt business, except he went to a wedding. And at that wedding, he started randomly talking to a guy who said, oh, my name's Jerry Parker. I'm a turtle. And Jerry was telling Salem what he did for a living and how he had learned what to do. And Salem went home to Canadian Texas just hearing that story at a wedding and said, I'm going to do this too. And so... Jerry had told him, if well, you ever want to know how this works, just call me up. Salem will call up the next week and show, them, show up in Richmond, Virginia. Now, this was years before I met Jerry, but Jerry did tutor him, so to speak, and I kind of ended up classifying Salem as a second-generation turtle, meaning he, was a, he, he had kind of learned these, these rules uh, secondhand and, and went ahead. And,
0: so he made his fortune by trading.
1: Yeah. He, Is that
0: still an opportunity for kids of my generation, or do we have to start <clears throat> blogs? I mean, what's our, what's our opportunity?"
1: Well, there's there's, there's trading, there's trading, and then there's being a fund manager. Being a fund manager is not very fun in many ways. And it gets worse probably every year. So you have regulation, you have clients, you have money that gets excited to invest with you, and then that money gets excited to leave you. And it just, they call it hot money, and it's jumping all around trying to chase returns. So that's a whole different story. I think the inspiring thing, once again, though, with like the Salem story that I just mentioned, is just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And as we were talking, like, you know, what, what is, is this really the way, well, you're talking about the two systems. So you have the, the, the you know, the CEO of Yahoo and then the Salem Abraham example. Mm-hmm. So the Salem Abraham example is the, it's the entrepreneur. It's your world. It's the tropical MBA, you know, it's the guy that says, I don't need anything except myself. I'm going to just take a big sword and I'm going to go out there and start slaying dragons because I'm confident enough to know that 99.9% of the people are either lazy, ignorant, or scared. So if that's what the vast majority of the population is, and I take a sword and I go out there, I, I kind of like my odds. And that's so that, you know, you once to just keep repeating myself, but the CEO of Yahoo and the, the independent entrepreneur. And if you are the independent entrepreneur and the guys that I mentioned, the billionaire guys, the reason why they act just like me and you, is because they're still an independent entrepreneur no matter what. That's how they started. They don't ever forget their roots. And that's why it's always easy to talk with them. You know? Now, if you talk with someone who's a part of the system, you know they're first. First thing they're going to say is, oh, "Can I see your uh, CV? Can I see your resume? Uh, where'd you go to school? Um, let's give you a, you know, let's give you some kind of. Let, can we can we test your IQ again?" And you're like, "What the hell does that have to do with anything?"
0: Do you ever fly coach?
1: <laughs> do I? Uh, I try not to now. <laughs> <I'm curious. laughs> I am curious. I try not. I, well, listen, I, I've traveled a lot this this year in 2013 across Asia, and so I did not do a lot of coach. However. I did use the United Around the World Fair, oh, yeah. which allowed me to be in business and first class for probably coach rates for the number of flights that I did. So once again, <laughs> Entrepreneur 101, you know. Are you one of these guys, a lot of people in your space, they say things
0: like America is going to go down.
1: Oh, by the way, hold on. When I fly from Saigon to Bangkok for, oh, yeah. for your event, I will fly coach. I'm not flying from <laughs> Saigon to Bangkok in first class.
0: <laughs> Noted. Derek Savers mentioned that.
1: Yeah, yeah a $22
0: million exit or whatever, and he had a business for many years before that that was cash flowing millions of dollars of personal income, and he said he never flew business class, and it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away.
1: But anyway. Well, um, he didn't fly a lot of Singapore Air because if I have some extra cash (laughs) and I can fly Singapore Air and there's four girls that look like fashion models working harder than any stewardesses that I've ever seen on an airline, I'm sorry. I'm just going to have to disagree. (laughs) So
0: a lot of the guys in in the investment space Entrepreneurs are really optimistic people, and we don't spend a lot of time maybe reading the news as most people in your space It seems like a little bit more like you guys are kind of plugged into trends and this nation's doing this and the debt ratio and all this kind of stuff Do you share the opinion that the United States is in the shit can and it's gonna blow up in everybody's face or what do you think is gonna? Happen with all this stuff. Do you have well, any look in my, in
1: my world my specific trading world if anybody checks up on it? It's it's really not about having any knowledge of those things, but as you and I have talked that doesn't preclude us from looking at the system and saying, geez, it's really disgusting that the Fed lowered interest rates to zero to make our grandparents poor to save Goldman Sachs. You could say that's a really shitty move. Right. I don't know how it's going to end. I mean, I, I look at- Would you have let these banks go out of business? Of course. Of course. Now, why, why isn't that an obvious answer? Why didn't the US government choose to do that? The <laughs> US government is controlled by the freaking banks. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, the people, I mean— And by controlled, you mean— Controlled, yeah. yeah. I mean, so if the, if, if, if the current Treasury Secretary at the time and all the other functionaries involved had all worked for Goldman Sachs' as partners, right. it's not exactly like they're going to let their buddies go under. I mean, it's an incestuous union. And that's the thing that Americans are all messed up on, is Americans like to say, you know, as you and I sit in the middle of a communist country, and most Americans would be like, oh, you know— this guy Andrews and Covell, they've lost their mind. They're in a communist country. There's no freedoms there. Ugh. And then these same people in America go to the polls every two to four years, and they think, I'm going to elect my guy, and everything's going to change. Now, You know, look, I'm not going to get political or anything here, except for one little example. And now somebody can correctly say, well, Mike, what about the conservative criticism? Look, there's, there's plenty to go around there. However, the fall of 2008, a lot of people, a lot of young people were very excited For one particular reason, and this is really just an example of critical thinking more than anything. It's not really me trying to, because I'm very libertarian, so I don't really care about, I'm not part of the fantasy that the vote's going to make a difference. But in the fall of 2008, a lot of people thought their vote was going to make a difference, and there was all kinds of love-ins, sit-ins, kumbaya, group hugs, and that if you elect Barack Obama, the wars will stop. Not fucking true. You know, so, I mean, at some point in time, everyone needs to kind of just say, what do you want to do with yourself? Do you want to... Go down this path of thinking. Well, if I collect all this information, I know all these data points. I pretend that some there's some government daddy to tuck me in each night, and that that's going to solve my life, and that's going to give me passion. It's going to do this, and it's going to do that. Come on, man! It's all it's it's a waste of time. It's an illusion. It's a it's a ruse. It's a scam. It's it's. I mean, it, you could you could even go as far as to, to save in some ways, for some people, it's a form of mind control. That people literally sit around and think that their life, their satisfaction, their meaning is going to come from getting $2,000 a month in Social Security versus $1,900 a month in Social Security. I mean, could you really imagine yourself expending mental energy about whether or not some system gives you $1,900 or $2,000? And how bad has your life become if that's where you are? And plenty of people are there, and I feel sorry for them. But stop teaching your kids to be losers too, right? I know why you get so many <laughs> podcast
0: listens, bro. <laughs> Some good shit. Some good shit. You could be on the TV, you know. Any parting words, words, Michael? This, I think, we all have dual motivations. We want to express ourselves. We want to have our art. You know, for for all of us, it's going to be different. But a lot of us, we just plain old want to get rich. We want to you know, I want to give my parents a healthy and safe retirement, for example. I knew that that was partly my responsibility when I got into this game. What's the parting words for that, the hustling side of the audience, the the, the part of us that wants to go out there and crush it?
1: Well, the hustling side was too, as I'm very, I always think about like, okay, what did I start with? How did I start? And so I might, I can look at a career arc and I can say, what do I know now? And how do I feel now? But then you can also say, how did I start? And I, I would say that If you are in a position where you are kind of saying, well, I can't do this, or there can only be so many categories of one, there can only be so many Michael Cabells, there can only be so many Dan Andrews, so to speak, even though neither of us would really sit around and say, well, there's nothing special about us, whatever, We're we're just two guys that put our pants on too. But if you're telling yourself that you can't do it out of the gate, then that's probably where you need to work on yourself the most. Because if you are already questioning yourself if you are already expending any mental energy to say that you cannot do this, you cannot become a category of one, you cannot become a specialist, you cannot become an expert, you cannot monetize yourself, you cannot develop a following on the web, a real following, a following where people really trust, respect you and want more from you. If you are already saying out of the gate, you don't think you can do it, then I would spend every waking moment of your life trying to figure out why that is wrong. And then, because the moment you already know you can do it, do you really need to listen to Dan and Mike? You don't. Because you're going to figure it out. You're going to be resourceful. You're going to go down the path. Oh, dead in. Walk around that one. Oh, dead in. Walk around that one. I mean, this conversation is really for the person that's sitting out there saying, eh, Dan, he's got a successful website, Yeah, whatever, he got lucky, or this guy Mike, you know, he just got lucky too, or this or that, or I can't do this, or there's not enough space for me. Or What's the alternative? what is the alternative? You're gonna fucking die. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, who wants, I mean, we're all gonna die anyways. So if you're gonna die, right? A very stoic view. Yes. I give Ferris credit for this, Ryan Holiday credit for kind of inspiring me a little bit to read some of the stoicism. So if you're gonna die, that's the worst case scenario. Imagine it. Hmm, gonna die. Okay, that seems kind of rough. My family's gonna die. That seems kind of rough. Okay, I've got limited time here. Now what am i gonna do? right and if what you're going to do with your limited time is tell yourself that you can't do it i don't know anyways i, I probably can't help you if you're already in that's my and you, you know what you probably can't help yourself either you're probably toast why don't you stop listening don't listen to anything i say don't listen to dan go do something get a job for the asshole again just do that you'll be happier
0: if you do decide to question michael on that point it's trendfollowing.com it's michael Koval. thank you so much for joining us and i do look forward to hearing you at the event just a, one month now thanks dan fun Ian, uh, you know, I know we don't generally do episodes that long, but I was just having a great time sitting with Michael and hearing his story. And thank you, Michael, for you know, sharing it with us. And he's going to go more in depth at our event. Show us the numbers. Show us the nitty gritty. If you want to check out our event, over 200 entrepreneurs in Bangkok, October 18th, kick me an email, dan at tropicalmba.com. And thank you again, Michael, for coming out to the show. Actually, I was on Michael's show just a few weeks ago, he's got a really popular podcast. He has over a million downloads. I will link to that in this episode. I really go in-depth in that one and shoot from the hip a little bit, so that's kind of fun. Ian, this week, our friends Jimmy and Doug from Manal.com launched their Pro Travelers bag. What's your review, sir?
2: Oh, it's, it's doing me well. I'm uh, sitting here actually right now in Prague looking at that bag. I had such a good time laying my stuff out on the bed, packing it up, getting it over here. Uh, just a great experience. And yeah, those guys are launching on Kickstarter. They have been working their asses off to yes. get this bag off the ground. And hopefully, you will be able to get yours soon. Those
0: guys are flexing their hustle muscle, running all around, hanging out at the factory. Uh, I had a meeting with them. I know you've been meeting with them quite a bit. I'm so excited about what they're doing. I love the product, and which amazes me because I – was the naysayer, as you know. I was like, don't even bother with this space-agey crap. Man, I love that bag. I went on a a 10-day trip with it. When I got back, there was this beautiful moment when you know the bag is, the the killer feature for me is that it clamshells completely. It 100% opens up. So you don't have to dig into your bag anymore for stuff. So I crack uh, this bag and all of my clothes are just sitting there nicely, no wrinkled after a full day of traveled, Boom. Jimmy and Doug, well done. Good luck on the Kickstarter. We're going to be there supporting and staking this thing because, uh, you know, I definitely want to make this thing happen. Lots of our friends are going to be ordering bags. One of the cool things about their Kickstarter, Ian, is that you just go buy the bag from them. You know, these guys aren't putting up some pie in the sky BS Kickstarter project. It's like, hey, give us the money for the bag and we'll get you a bag. So I think that that's pretty sweet. Good luck, guys. Speaking of travel, you're in Prague, buddy. What's going on with that? European Ian. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, for the second time this year, believe it or not. I didn't I didn't necessarily plan this. Actually, we are sitting on the couch maybe a month and a half ago. And Rob and Mike from Startups for the Rest of Us, uh, they're having their conference, MicroConf Prague, uh, with uh, Dan Taylor, our buddy. Yeah. And we just said, hey, I think we should go to that. And yeah. so that's what we did. And so here I am, and you will be soon over here as well.
0: Yeah, I think that, that for us is... These are, I would say, you know, it's an elevation of lifestyle, really. I mean, I, I wouldn't have done that in the early stages of our business, like fly to a conference or whatever. But I think that that, you know, that's a a, a good place to start investing in yourself is
2: to. Well, what, I, I do think actually what. We did go to conferences in the beginning, and actually, we're starting this new business, this SaaS product, and this is a this is a startup software conference. So I think it's very applicable to what we're doing right now. Yeah, but yeah. We're maybe we are pro- not have done a plot, but we definitely flew to Las Vegas.
0: That's a good point. But we went to go sell to. We went to a conferences where our customers were going to be at. Now we're going to a conference where a bunch of cool people are going to be at, and they're going to teach us things. So it's like. It's like a a one step removed. It's like a one step of luxury, you know? It's like going to a seminar where they teach you things rather than going to a trade show where you're gonna hustle the whole time. But anyway, yeah, I mean, what a wonderful way to invest some money into your business is by educating yourself and and getting yourself in the room with really world-class people. I mean, I look to Rob Walling and Mike and their whole community. I look to those guys as leaders, you know? And so I think they're gonna assemble some of the best minds in the world. And, uh, man, it would be a shame for us not to be there, given we're doing the software stuff. Hey, speaking of movements that we're involved in, saw this article about digital nomads trending on Hacker News. W- what is with these jerks that, it go- that, that, that the digital nomad lifestyle just they can't – it's too much for them? I, I can't read another <laughs> article like this. I can't read another I think another- it's
2: worth a read. Actually, you know, I'm, here, the thing that I'm most happy about with this article, Dan, is that it is trending very well on Hacker News, uh, several hundred comments – and it's really sparked a discussion. And I, I didn't realize, actually, that there were so many people that were passionate about the same thing that we passionate about. I thought our community was much smaller than it is. But uh, here it is on Hacker News. It's
0: getting blown wide open by stuff like Skype and all this technology coming along and, and the economy crumbling and the career script breaking down for people. So yeah, man, we're this is just getting started. This little canoe is going to be a cruise ship. I'm feeling it. I, I think there's going to be... I wouldn't be surprised if the digital nomad community is seeing like double growth every year for the next five years. I mean, I don't know if there's any way you count that, but if if someone were to say that's what's happening, you know, if we had the 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 statistician with the world view on this stuff, I wouldn't be surprised. I just wouldn't be surprised. I'm, it's absolutely happening right now. I you think know, you're right. I was walking down the street yesterday, Ian, thinking about would it be interesting for us to do a predictions episode? And one of the predictions that popped into my head was. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not location independent, in 10 years' time, five years' time, you will be.
2: Does that make sense as a prediction? Oh, yeah. It, abso- it absolutely makes sense. And, and the name of the article is How I Thought I Wanted to Become a Digital Nomad. We'll link to it in the show notes here. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I want to point out in the comments over at Hacker News that came up time and time again was this idea of slow travel. And slow travel is what we've been promoting for a long time. The guy that wrote the article got frustrated because, you know, obviously it takes a long time to get set up. So some of the things that I'm going through in Prague right now, I had to figure out where to get my laundry done. Where the best cafe is, where I can drink a beer, all this stuff takes about a week, what two weeks max to get set up, right? And then, but once quality. you're set up, you're set up. And then that's what we call slow travel. So you stay somewhere between a month and six months at a time. These are first world problems.
0: I don't know yeah. the best ice cream shop in my beautiful <laughs> European neighborhood. I already found that, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, before we get off the podcast, I know this is a long one, but hang on. I got a tech tip. It's called Pocket and uh, Pocket is a wonderful Chrome plugin and an iPhone app um, that makes it, it's a really elegant way to read articles later. So this isn't, wouldn't be used for like 10 page slate, long term things, long form articles. I would use more Instapaper for that. But this is like, hey, that's a cool little article. I wanna read that in the bathroom sometime. This is like for bathroom, airplane, travel reading. Just put that Pocket app Onto your phone and put the little Chrome thing, and the UI works brilliantly. So, Read for Later, wonderful solution. Pocket, we will link see up to it. This is at tropicalmba.com/rich. Of course, you can go to the blog and get all the links of everything we talked about. Get the list of the ten books that Michael listed in the middle of the interview, and see everything that Ian and I are up to, including getting our entire back catalog. Of podcast episodes, listen to us, our embarrassing journeys, learning about entrepreneurship.
2: (laughs) Anything more to add, Ian? See you next week, Dan.
0: It's great to talk to you. We will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. Again, we've got our complete audio archive available at tropicalmba.com. That's the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. Also, every episode has complete notes with links. If you're interested in something we talked about, check out the site. And as always, we'll see you next Thursday morning.
1: Yeah, buddy.